Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Today I'm talking to Dr. Celia Belaska. Celia is a geriatrician, a very passionate geriatrician, who worked extremely hard clinically, including during COVID. During her interview, she'll share some of the experience she, she had at that time. She'll also talk about how she got involved in the Royal College of Physicians and says she wishes that perhaps she'd done it earlier. So listen and see whether you might want to get involved with your Royal College as soon as you can. Celia, to to start with, if I could just have a summary of your career journey. Um, Well, I went to medical school in London at King's and then did standard selection of SA show jobs, which actually included a job in geriatric medicine, uh, and then went into a selection of registrar jobs, because in those days you could do a registrar job in rheumatology, actually, I did a year's rheumatology, and then go off and do respiratory medicine, which is what I did, and so on, and jump around in a way that actually made it a lot easier and gave you a lot more time to kind of work out what you wanted to do, because I didn't really have much of a clue. Uh, rheumatology, great as it was, and I learned a lot, was very outpatient-based, and that kind of made me realise I needed an inpatient specialty. And I went back to my geriatric medicine, which I'd done. I can talk a bit more about why, if you want. And then ended up as a senior registrar in North London at UCLH and the Whittington in geriatric medicine. Did that for two years, and then a consultant job came up at the Whittington. I just been working at the Whittington and so bless them even though I was far too young and really didn't have a clue I don't think they appointed me as I said at the age of 32 to a consultant job so it was my first interview I can't believe I gave a very good interview but uh, I'm ever grateful to Gertrude Rye who was a consultant colleague at the time the only one really at the time who uh, obviously who believed in me and obviously was willing to give me a chance. So I worked. I've worked at the Whittington ever since. I was really, always really, for reasons I don't know, interested in education. Maybe because my mum was a teacher. I don't know. Um, and I set up the, uh, the first undergraduate teaching firm in geriatric medicine at the Whittington and then got involved in running revision courses for finals and then became undergraduate subdean and did that role for a number of years before jumping to postgraduate education. And I took on the foundation training programme director role at the Whittington and then eventually after that, the director of medical education. And actually, I think probably quite late in my career, I then moved on to more external roles. It's actually something I kind of reflect on and slightly regret that I left it a long time. Maybe I was a bit daunted by it. Um, And then eventually I became a a deputy director of the foundation school for HEE for North London. And subsequently I've had a couple of roles within the College of Physicians. So I was a censor 
for three years and I'm now a clinical lead for assessment at, uh, at the London College. So that's that's it in a, in, in in a nutshell. Just, a, just a, a couple of things. Did you always want to be a doctor? No, no, not at all. My dad always wanted me to be a doctor. Um, uh, I was the sort of only child of elderly parents. I think my mum was 45 when, when she had me, so they were very doting, and it felt all, you know, a little bit intense. And so whatever my dad suggested, I didn't want to do. Um, perhaps parents do know best, but I thought, no, 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 no way am I going to do medicine. And actually, actually, I wanted to be a marine biologist, and that was really because there was a guy called Jack Cousteau. Oh, Jack I remember Cousteau. Jack Cousteau. Yeah, and he used to do these amazing documentaries on television um, about exploring the undersea world, and I just thought, you know, exploring remote places with wildlife sounded wonderful. But then I discovered you could only do marine biology in Bangor in North Wales or in Aberdeen, and nothing against those two places. But I was really, you know, I'd grown up in rural Northern Ireland, in a small town in Northern Ireland, feeling that everybody was watching me, you know, everything I did, and I kind of wanted the big city and the bright lights. So I'm afraid I didn't say any of that at my interview, but that's why medicine and London won over. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and you, you've, you, I mean, you've, you've worked as a geriatrician on what people call the coal face or the front line yeah, or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you, you did a lot of face-to-face -face work during COVID, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How I mean, was that? That was fine. I mean, I... I love clinical medicine. I kind of, it's always, you know, I've loved my career in medicine because I really, because I love clinical medicine and education and I've been able to do both throughout it. And so sort of wards and inpatient work and seeing patients has always been what I've been all about. So, you know, I, none of us really hesitated when COVID happened in just rolling our sleeves up and, and working on the ward. So, yeah, I effectively... We all got COVID one after one after another, but uh, yeah, I effectively took my turn in running a, a COVID ward. So one of our care of or all of our care of older people wards at the Whittington all became COVID wards essentially for months at a time. Um, and, you know, we uh, the great thing was everybody pulled together, the team working, you know the. The Whittington's a fantastic place anyway. It's got a great group of physicians who all work very collaboratively. And we came together even more collaboratively, you know, than ever. And everybody just did, went over and above. And actually, I really quite liked it in one, in a weird kind of way. You know, it was intense and it was knackering and it was sometimes difficult because there were some very difficult decisions to be made. But there was always somebody to talk to about it. And our department particularly were very cohesive and that's been one of the great things for me. And we always do kind of support each other and talk to each other. So, and that continued and, you know, was a great framework for, for getting through COVID for us all. So, that so seems yeah, to me. we did it. We did what we had to do, really. Well, were you at any stage worried for yourself or your yeah. health? Yeah, I remember saying to my kids actually, just as you know, just as it was all happening and lockdown was happening, and I was aware that I was going to be on the ward the next week, and there was almost no PPE, and I thought, 
you know, I, I remember saying to them, you know, something corny about how much I cared about them and that it was a slight, there was a distinct possibility that, you know, I might get ill and there's a possibility, you know, obviously a possibility that it could be fatal. I, we just didn't really know. They were um, lost for words, as <laughs> I um, And I think my husband was, you know, who, who's not medical, uh, was also kind of slightly daunted. But I used to sort of, he was at that stage working from home. So I just used, I used to go off in the morning at the crack of dawn, come back, take all of, you know, everything off, put it all in the washing machine, go upstairs, shower, and then, you know, come back before I saw him. But I didn't, I'm afraid to say I did give him COVID as well, although he had an easier time of it than I did. But. Were you, were you on Oh, no, I was fine. I was fine. I wasn't hospitalised, but I was, you know, I was, yeah. People from work would ring me and say, what are your sats? And I would say 92%, and they'd say, that's fine, and put the phone <laughs> down. And I think, well, actually, it's not really fine, is it? <laughs> I was coughing and coughing and coughing for weeks and I used to lie prone because I was thinking, God, you know, what if I die in the night? But um, anyway, it, it, it took about two weeks, actually. I wasn't well for about two weeks. Mm. Whereas Dave, my husband, was slightly fluey for 48 hours and then bounced back. It's amazing how it affected people differently, wasn't <laughs> it? Was it was bizarre. It was bizarre. But but sort of moving on from that, you you say that you had parallel parallel interests in education and yes. medicine. Yeah. Um, tell me about the education bit. You, you say how you started. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why, but I was I was always interested, and I, you know, as a trainee, it was something I always was involved in teaching students, and I. You know, and I really saw how good educators made a significant difference to to engagement, to your you know the engagement, your one's engagement and one's confidence, really people's confidence, and and I and I sort of sort of saw, and I've seen that really throughout my career, and I, you know I see it in our department. We've trainees who we've looked after and, and supported through their training come back as consultants. We've got, I I was thinking about this the other day, six of the consultants in my department have passed through the department as, you know, undergraduates and often, well, mostly postgraduates and some also as undergraduates. So, you know, it, it it's such a key part of what we do. And I just always really believed in it. And I you know, I got, I was, because you're, if you're keen and enthusiastic, the students love it, you get given more to do. And so the whole thing built up fairly rapidly. And my kind of undergraduate role at the Whittington built up really quite quickly after I was appointed. How I then got engaged with postgraduates, I don't, I'm not sure how it happened. I mean, I was obviously a supervisor of foundation doctors. These things are often opportunistic, aren't they? And, yeah. Uh, I think somebody what, somebody was stepping down from the foundation TPD role and said, you know, you could do this, you might be good at this. And so I kind of thought, oh, well, maybe it wasn't something I'd really planned. But then most, lots of my career hasn't been very planned and lots of it has been but there's kind been of a, very opportunistic. There is a kind of natural progression between um, being a good teacher Yes. Or a good educator. Yes. And then being involved in running education yes. programs and yes. education stuff. So how, how did that, how, how did, why did you make the move 
And or did you know you were making that move? I'm not sure how conscious it was at the time, really. Um, I, I suppose you, you, I suppose you see what you think is good, and you see what you think isn't done well, and you start wanting to influence it. I think that's just how it happened, really. Um, you know, I was always I, I, I do get bored fairly easily, and I'm always keen. I've always been keen to sort of take on a new challenge. So I suppose, I suppose that was it, really. And I and um, and I just saw I, I, there were one or two people actually in leadership roles at the Whittington who. who who did it very well and were quite inspiring. In fact, one of the directors of medical education, she was brilliant. And she just oversaw the whole of medical education, had some really good structures and inspired and developed all the educators very well. And uh, I kind of aspired to be like her, really. So it was natural that I would gradually build up to taking on her role. Several people after her, but I did it. So, so there were the roles that you had in the trust, and you mentioned earlier that maybe you got involved in external roles a bit a bit late. Yeah. So tell, tell us about a bit more about the external roles and what does that provide to yes. your career? That yes, that... Um, well, I suppose the College of Physicians is the, is it is the obvious one to talk about. I think I was, you know, uh, perhaps daunted by the college. I became a PACES examiner, which was a common thing for people who postgraduate education to do. And, and that was fine. And I did a lot of PACES examiner and became a PACES chair and a PACES host. Um, but the sort of wider college was somehow or other quite daunting to me. Yeah, actually, it was you who suggested that I, it, it was you, so why, why didn't I apply to be a censor? And I actually applied once and didn't got it, didn't get it. And then I thought about it and thought about it and thought, mm, because I don't think I'm a particular political animal. So, and I was thought the sort of wider college roles were for older men with many more letters after their name by me who moved in political circles, you know. Um, but I kind of, thought about it and talked to a few other people and I thought, no, actually, I can do this. And so I reapplied, actually much better prepared the second time and got it. And, and yeah, learned a huge amount from that jump personally, developed a huge amount personally from the diversity of things that go on in the college that, you know, I think lots of other people as well don't really fully appreciate. Until so what sort of things, what sort of things did you... Well, I got, involved, I got involved in the Student and Foundation Doctor Network, which was a fairly obvious thing for me to get involved in because I was, by that stage, also a foundation school director and, uh, and I had lots of undergraduate experience. And, and working with them and developing them to run, for example, their own careers conference was a huge hit. And working particularly working with the amazing staff in the college who, you know, the, the, the events people, etc. who just, I, I hadn't really been aware of their existence. I also got involved in the Physicians Associates and we set up a question bank for this Physicians Associates registration exam. And again, working with some great people within the education department 
at the college. And then I started to do more with the education department. So I kind of, I learned from, from a lot of non-medical people, a lot of skills and yeah, was, yeah. And was really realized how much added value they all brought to, mm. to the college as they almost silently worked behind the scenes. It's quite I, inspiring, I think, quite I often. often have often felt that when times are tricky and you trust, it's quite nice to have another organisation yes. to call home. Yeah. It, yeah. It's quite... Um, yeah. It sounds very busy. Yes. So one of the Too things busy. people worry about is, yes. their, is their work-life balance. So yes. any... any Oh, well, I'm rubbish at it, really. I'm not good at it, and I'm not good at managing it very well. I mean, I kind of... Um, I, I, you have to work very flexibly when you've got lots of different roles, uh, and you've also got to protect the core things that are crucial. So, you know, diary management is really, really, really important, and you have to be very organised. So, yeah, I've done that. I do take a lot of holidays as well, though, and I do protect my leave and, you know, I basically leisure time is leisure time and that's important. And I've always sort of made a huge effort to keep doing things outside work as well because I think that's really important. Um, so it is really busy, but somehow or other I manage to just about keep all the balls in the air. There does come a point when you've got too many things and the balls stop dropping. And that has happened to me on a few occasions. And then I've had to sort of sit down and think rationally and divest myself of a few things. So, yeah, you have to know your limits, I think, as well, and know when to stop. But, but the diversity of it is one of the huge pluses of it all really as well you know and that's that's why I'm still working I think you know it's kept me going because every day is different mm. so and it, you know and there's a, a challenge around every corner which is fascinating and you've also uh got a husband children yeah. family yeah. yeah um so when how did all that come about did you have to make compromises Work part time, yeah, or? yeah, well, yeah, slightly. I, I, I got married just before I became a consultant, actually, and then had that. I've had, I've got two sons. Had them two or four years later, so quite late. You know, I was quite an old um, mother, I suppose, in my mid mid thirties, uh, and um, Dave, my husband, has never been somebody who particularly sees traditional roles you know so he's always mucked in equally and actually what is really nice to see is the boys with their partners there's no kind of traditional role play in the old-fashioned way my mother always worked yeah so um yeah they have very my my sons and their partners have very equal sort of division of, of duties and both careers are equally important so and that's how it's been with us and I'm grateful for Dave today that that's what he was like. We probably wouldn't be married otherwise. We had a, when Don, when my older son was born, we employed a full-time living nanny and I realised that that's so much more difficult for people to do now. Um, but it was life-saving really and I'm 
I had a friend who said, you've just got to do whatever it takes. She had two small children in order to, in order to get you back to work. So I went back at three months with this full-time living nanny employed and um, we're still in contact with her now actually she was with us for between eight and nine years so it got us through all of it and really enabled me to work and my kids are still you know it's still in touch with her as well and they still talk to you and they still talk, <laughs> and amazingly they still talk to me yeah 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 and that, in fact when she left that's when I went slightly part-time I worked four days a week for a few years because I thought that one day a week I ought to be at the school gates. And that kind of absolved my guilt slightly. It's very hard balance, isn't it? So, it's impossible well, guilt, to get it right. The, the guilt is something that people talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's always there. Yeah. Have you, do you think that you've had any particular barriers or anything that you, that you maybe would have wanted to do but weren't able to do because of, the, because of having so many balls in the air? No, not from having so many balls in the air. I think the only barrier was my perceived barrier to external roles, you know, that I didn't think I was good enough or important enough to, to do all the external things. And I, and I slightly regret that now. And it took pushes from people like you to say, yeah, you could do these things. The imposter syndrome. The imposter, the imposter syndrome. syndrome. Thing. Yeah, I think that. But that's a perceived barrier, really. I mean, I had no female role models as a junior doctor. Um, coming up at all, really. But I had, there were a couple of people who just said things to me at the right time, you know. My parents always believed I could do whatever I wanted. There was no, nothing about, never anything about being, being female, you know, as I said, my mum worked. When I was a registrar, in fact, that was my respiratory medicine phase, I, my consultant was a guy called David Lever. And he, uh, and I was thinking about geriatric medicine as a career. I, when I'd done it as an SHO, I'd gone into this sort of workhouse-type hospital that was off the main, main teaching hospital site, found all these patients with all these amazing things wrong with them, not amazing to them, but amazing to me, and, you know, got very specialists down from the main teaching hospital to kind of look at them and help sort them out and then got the turnover, got them sorted out and the turnover of the ward going dramatically well with the help of an amazing ward manager. And I, and I always remembered that I that, that had, I thought that had made a difference and I sort of sort of came back to that time and time again. But I wasn't sure at that time geriatric medicine wasn't a popular career choice. It was something you did if you couldn't do anything else. It's changed so much since then. But, and I remember talking to David Lever about it and saying, I, I really thought I'd quite like to do it, but I was worried about my credibility as a clinician. And he said that that was a load of nonsense and that if you're good at your job, and he told me I would be, then your credibility will come from that. So he do sounds... what I wanted to do. So he really made a difference, actually. And I can remember that as a trainer, you know, just, you know... It's just something like small things can make a real difference to people's careers. So maybe he's part of it, but what inspires you? What, what drives you? What keeps you going? What's kept you still working? Um, well, I still actually love clinical medicine. I really do. I really like, and it's the thing about geriatric medicine, it's the clinical problem solving People coming in often very non-specifically and sorting out the diagnosis. And I still love that. And I love 
supporting trainees, actually. I mean, we all need to do it. They're our future. Um, I love it when I get... Actually, this week, I got an email from somebody who was in trouble over seven years ago. And it's a long and complicated story, but it, it, it ended up with the GMC hearing uh, that I went and gave evidence at. And this person emailed me, um, yeah, just a few days ago to say that they were about to apply for consultant jobs and, uh, and they would never forget, you know, the, the support they got from a few of us, you know, when they were going through a difficult time and were lost and unsure. And it wasn't very much, really. Mm. You know, it wasn't a big deal for me to do that. But it, small things, you know, make a big difference so, to people, so, don't they? And that's great. And if you can keep doing even small things, then it's worth doing. Yeah, so it obviously made a huge difference to, yeah, to, to yeah. that person. Yeah, a small thing makes a big difference. Yeah. So, so you've talked about a lot of positive things. Have there been times when you've just thought, you know what, I, I've had enough? Because quite a lot of people you hear about being burnt out or not, yes. no longer enjoying their, yes. their jobs. Does that, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, well, I, when I went from full-time to part-time, the time was right because so I, you know, yeah, I have not done full-time clinical medicine for over five years now. and But I think the diversity in doing other roles has, has kept me going. I don't think I could continued with frontline medicine any longer than I did. I think as a new consultant, it was very difficult as well, you know, trying to do everything and, you know, and when you get complaints and something goes wrong and, yeah... I kind of remember the lowest point was when, as a new consultant, I had a patient who committed suicide on the ward, who jumped out of the ward window of the Royal Northern Hospital, as it was on Ottawa Road. And um, he, this patient had come in for investigation of weight loss and difficulty swallowing. And of course, we were doing the GI investigation, looking for esophageal or gastric cancer, and failed to notice that actually it was all severe depression. Um, and there was a, there was a, um, you know, a sort of internal investigation afterwards. And I remember being asked as part of that investigation when I was completely wrapped up on what I'd done wrong and what mistakes I'd made, asked what you had done to support the rest of the ward. And of course, I'd done absolutely nothing. And that was such a wake-up call for me. And I think... Really, from then on, I've realised that however rubbish it is, if you talk to other people, it, 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 it you know, it really helps. And I've, and, and that also that when things are rubbish for you, they're rubbish for everybody else. And you all have to kind of support each other, really. And I've sort of hung on to that. Within our department, we have a social secretary and he'll go, we have that, we have to, yeah, we nominate a social secretary on rotation and they have to organise some kind of gathering on a regular basis where we just all get together outside the hospital. And just having those relationships with people gets you through difficult times, I think. Yeah, I know. I think, I think you're right. You do need to have colleagues to talk to. We're sort of chatty, human, communicative yeah, animals, really, aren't we? Yeah, and we've, yeah. And, and you can lose it. You lose that very easily when you're under pressure, you know. And, uh, yeah, when things are difficult. So, 
yeah, a few low points, but nothing. So, so for people coming through, for people who are at the beginning of their careers or are thinking about a career in physician specialty or geriatric yes. medicine, yes. Do, do you have anything that you think they perhaps ought to think about or some advice for people coming through? Um, well, I think, I think know yourself. I think you know yourself, but you're not always... You don't really always verbalise or externalise it very well. And I know it took me quite a long time to work out, you know, what my priorities were and what was important to me. And then you've got to look for that in a career. And there are so many careers in medicine. There's always, I think, something for somebody. I think um, don't give up. Mm. You know, I think if you want to do something and you don't get it first time, Keep going and try again, and if it matters enough to you, you'll get there in the end. Um, yeah, I, I think diversifying is really important. And what you know, I mean, medicine gives you so many, so many opportunities to diversify and take every opportunity that's thrown at you, um, because there will be things in there that will kind of develop you and that you will you will love and keep doing yeah don't be afraid of any of it really and the imposter syndrome I don't know how you get past that really but yeah just if you don't try to do things then you'll never know really whether you could do them or not if it doesn't work out it's not the end of the world so just go for it I think yeah so Sally Sally Davies um you know, the Chief Medical yeah. Officer, Sally Davies, once said to me, do you know, Jane, sometimes you've just got to hold your nose and jump. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Thank you very much for talking to me today. I'm sure absolutely inspirational to a number of the people who are listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget there are many other interviews in season one.